Now take your Bible and um, open to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses here of the chapter. John chapter 15, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I am him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burnt. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for an opportunity to to come and to worship you this morning and to open your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'd guide and direct us as we study uh, so that we can understand the truth that you have for us uh, to see uh, so very clearly here in this portion of Scripture. And and again, we uh, pray that you would honor yourself and honor Christ. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we come to our study here in the 15th chapter of uh, the the Gospel of John, it begins a new phase, uh, if you will, in Jesus' farewell uh, teaching. Uh, I I say it a lot uh, through all of our studies, but especially through John. uh, I I just think it's a wonderful truth. This is just a great portion of Scripture, deep with theological uh, uh, truth that we need to understand and then apply it to our lives. Now, again, it's still a Thursday night. We're there in the Passion Week. We've left the upper room because if you look back up in chapter 14, verse 30, uh, at the end there of that chapter, Jesus told the eleven, Arise, let us go from here. So these men have left the upper room. They're beginning their walk through Jerusalem. They're headed towards the east side of the city uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord will pray that long agonizing prayer that had him sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And, of course, while he's praying, the disciples will fall asleep and then eventually... In the garden will come Judas with the Roman soldiers, the Jewish religious leaders, to arrest him. Judas will give the kiss of betrayal. Uh, That will lead Jesus to the crucifixion in just a few hours afterwards. So as they leave the upper room, uh, the Lord continues this discourse uh, with this 11, this dialogue with these 11. Again, that's recorded in chapters 15 and 16. And when you get to chapter 17, that is what is uh, known as the high priestly prayer. And when we come to chapter 15, the Lord gives a metaphor, a word picture. I don't really think it's a parable per se, a simile, an illustration, an analogy, an extended figure of speech is how I would identify it. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, uh, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and uh, dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Verse 8, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I think verse 8 is the key. I think verse 8 is the point of the analogy about the vine, vine dresser, and branches and bearing fruit, etc. The whole point of the illustration is to determine who 
is a genuine believer. The whole discussion is about the nature of saving faith. How do you know that somebody is a true follower of Christ? I I think that's the point here. Because there's nothing more important than having eternal life. There's nothing more important than salvation. But how do you know? How do you know that you are genuinely saved? Over in uh, the book of Matthew, you don't need to turn there, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus makes this statement, verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those words there in Matthew chapter 7, spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, are intentionally calculated to induce sobriety and a sense of fear and trembling. That every man and woman would stop and consider their eternal destiny because there's nothing more important than salvation. To make sure that you are on the right path that leads to eternal life. Because the reality is that being a man is one of the most sobering realities in the entire universe. Because the truth is, once a man is born, he lives forever. Every human being born lives forever. We're eternal because we're created in the image of God. And after this life is over, there's a life to come in which every man born will live consciously, personally, intelligently, aware of every detail of our existence. In the life to come, we will experience every moment of our eternal existence in its fullest without distraction. And the Bible makes it very clear that there are only two places where men will spend eternity. That's either heaven or hell. And hell is described in the Bible as a place of relentless torment. A relentless accusing of the conscience, unrelieved guilt, sorrow, remorse, regret, isolation, agony, suffering. Punishment by God, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of wailing forever and a place obviously no one wants to be. But it's a place of no hope because there's no hope of escape once you find yourself there because men have sealed their eternal destiny in time, in the time that has been allotted to you in this life. Heaven, on the other hand, is described in the Bible as a place of unending, unlimited joy, happiness, satisfaction, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no tears, no loss, just sheer joy forever in the presence of God in Christ, and obviously a place you want to be. So again, the most important issue that you can ever talk about, or the most important issue that you could ever consider, is to make certain of your eternal destiny, your eternal salvation. Because the sad reality is there are many religious individuals who believe that they're on their way to eternal heaven who will one day realize when it is too late they have been eternally mistaken. One day many will find out this reality in a very terrifying way when it's too late for them. That they were not genuinely connected to God because they were not genuine followers of Christ. Many who have taken the broad road of false religions and false religious systems that lead to eternal destruction, and very few have gone through the narrow gate or are on the narrow path that leads the life, truly connect, leads to life, uh, truly connected to the person of Jesus Christ, because the person of Jesus Christ is the determinative factor in the issue of one's eternal destination. The person of Jesus Christ, who you think he is, how you interact with him, how you relate to him, is the issue of your eternal salvation. And again, the truth is, not everyone who claims to be a Christian or a follower of Christ really is. Unbelievers make professions of faith in Christ, false professions of faith in Christ. And people who are not truly Christians can be deceived into believing they are. People who are not truly Christians can be self-deceived into believing that they are. Uh, The danger of self-deception is great. Arthur Pink once said this, he said, Satan blinds one eye, and self-love closes the other, and the deceitfulness of sin seals both, and thus many assure themselves they're on their way to heaven, when the reality is they're on their high road to hell. So I think that's really the issue here, in this extended illustration, this metaphor, this 
uh, illustration uh, here in John 15. In the context, that's the issue. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Again, verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And there it is, prove to be my disciples. So again, the whole point of the illustration is to determine who's a genuine believer. How do you know somebody is a true follower of Christ? That's the main point. Now, there are a lot of other things in this text that are going on that we will, Lord willing, unpack along the way, not just the nature of uh, genuine salvation, but again, as you start the top of the chapter here, it's another picture as to the nature of Christ. Uh, It's another revelation of the deity of Christ. Now, when you come to this chapter, as you might imagine, there's a variety of different interpretations as to exactly what uh, the analogy means or the allegory means. But I'm going to do my best to try to give you what I think is the proper understanding. And I think, first off, to try to understand uh, is to uh, understand uh, the setting. Uh, Again, the occasion for the analogy. Again, I just said it a few moments ago, chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus says, I will not speak to you much more. For the ruler of this world is coming. And then he says, rise, let us depart. Right? So his time is running out. You've got to understand that in the context. His time is running out. Uh, the events of his arrest and crucifixion literally just hours away. Chapter 15 and 16 become the last things that he will say to his followers before his crucifixion. So it's important that he says what is vital to him. And he wants to cut to the chase, as it were, and get to the issue and warn them about false faith. And... He starts off again, finally, uh, for the last time here with these men, uh, with another declaration of his deity. You need to get the person of Jesus Christ right. He says, I am the true vine. Uh, Again, verse 5, he says, I am the vine. It's another claim to deity. You go, well, how, how do you get that out of there? Well, it's because of the verb I am. This is the seventh, the seventh of the I am statements that are in the Gospel of John. You remember the Old Testament when God revealed himself to Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall you say to them? Verse 14 of that chapter, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So I am is unquestionably understood as the name of God. And whenever Jesus makes one of these I am statements, which uh, he did often, uh, it's a claim, and, and as he claimed attributes of deity, again, he is identifying himself as God. Now, we've gone through six of these already in our study in the book of John, and again, there are seven great I am statements. Let me just review them. You don't have to turn there, but just listen and write the note down if you'd like. The first one was found back in John 6.35, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He repeated that in verse 41 of that chapter. I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. So he makes a statement of who he is, and then he backs it up by something he does. In this case here in John 6, it's when he had just, uh, when he said, I'm the bread of life, that's just after he fed the 5,000 in the wilderness. And at the same time, he contrasts what he can do with what Moses did or had done previously with his ancestors. Verse 49, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. This is a different kind of bread than the manna. I am the bread of life. The second I am statement was in John 8, verse 12, where he said, I am the light of the world. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The second I am statement in John 8, 12, uh, it comes right before he heals the man who is born blind. So he not only makes the statement that he is the light of the world, he actually proves it. Proves it by his word. Proves it by his actions. Actions. It's, a, it's an echo out of Genesis 1, 3, where God said, let there be light. And there was light. I am the light of the world. Third I am statement, John 10, verse 7, he says, I am the door. 
John 10, 7, Jesus therefore said to them, uh, again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now, in, in this I am statement in John 10, 7, Jesus is emphasizing that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven by entering any other means except through him. No one's entering into the kingdom of heaven except by Christ. And so the, the words in this passage here are couching the imagery of something they would understand of a shepherd and sheepfold. And, and he's saying, look, the only way to enter God's sheepfold, the only way to enter into God's family is through him. He's the only way. I am the door. He said, others before me who came are thieves and robbers. He says, the sheep, his sheep didn't hear them. Verse 8, verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Jesus Christ is the only way into God's family. The fourth I am statement was in John 10, verse 11, where he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, as the good shepherd, Christ demonstrates his love, his care for his own, and then he demonstrates his love by being the one who willingly protects the flock even to the point of his own death. And when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd, he's unmistakably taking for himself one of God's titles, one of God's names from the Old Testament, Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. The fifth I am statement comes in John 11, verse 25, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And Jesus makes that statement immediately before raising Lazarus from the dead. So again, Jesus doesn't just speak empty words. He backs it up. He backs up his claim. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He demonstrates that he can fulfill Yahweh's promises to ancient Israel. Isaiah 26, verse 19, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You will lie in the dust and awake and shout for joy, for dew is as the dew, or your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to departed spirits. God is going to raise the dead. And it also validates what John says of him in the book of the Revelation. Revelation 1, verse 6, uh, 17. John says, when I saw him speaking of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Verse 18. I am the living one and I was, uh, I am the living one and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. I am the resurrection and the life comes only through Christ. The sixth I am statement was made in John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So again, by making that claim, it's a claim of exclusivity. Uh, Jesus is saying that there's not just many ways to God, and he's just one of those many ways to God, as the world wants you to believe. But he's saying, no, I am the way. I am the only way to God. I am the only way... Uh, to heaven. I'm the only way to the Father. There's no other way to God except through me. He's saying man is not going to God in, in a reconciled relationship unless they go through him, unless they go through the person of Christ. I am the way. And when he gives himself that title, the truth, he's claiming to be truth incarnate. He's con- uh, confirming his identity back at the beginning of John, John 1 and 1 and John 1 14. His identity as the word the living incarnate word. He is the very essence of God's word, and the very essence of God's word is truth, as it says in Psalm 119, 160. And then when he makes that claim that he is the life, he claims that he is the source of life, the creator, the sustainer of life. He is the giver of life physical. He is the giver of life eternal. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the last one, or the seventh major I am statement here is in our text. I am the uh, truth, uh, I am the true vine here in uh, chapter uh, 15, verse 1. Not only uh, uh, um, emphasizing the sustaining power of Christ, that we as branches can't bear fruit unless we're joined in a vital union with the vine, and then only those who are joined to Christ receive power from him and can produce fruit in the Christian life. But in the context here, I think he's really saying, when he says, I am the true vine, He says, look, if you want to be connected with God, then you've got to be connected with me. I am the true vine. If you want to be connected with God, you've got to be connected with me, not Israel. 
It's not through Judaism. It's not through any other religious system. Again, it only comes through Christ alone. I am the true vine. And the only way to know God genuinely, the only way to go, know God, uh, the person of God, and have the life of God, to be connected to God, is through Christ. The only way to obtain eternal salvation is through Christ. The only way to obtain salvation is to be in a vital, life-giving union with Christ, vitally connected to him through Christ alone. And it's through Christ alone that the perfect life of God flows. So again, when he says, I am the true vine, I think in essence he's saying, look, there are many false vines, many false connections to God, many people who think that they are in union with God, but in reality they're deceived for instant Judas for instance, the nation of Israel. And I'll develop those more just in a moment. There are two more I am statements that aren't normally classified as part of the seven, but two more significant, I think, I am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, They're declarations of God's name, and Jesus applies those to himself. Uh, One comes as Jesus responds to the complaints of the Pharisees back in John 8, verse 56. Uh, he, he says, your father uh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. Uh, John 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So he's claiming eternality. They understood that. The last one is taking the name of God, right? They understood that. Uh, the last one is in the Garden of Gethsemane when the mob comes to arrest Jesus. Is in John eighteen three, They come and they uh, ask, uh, or he asks this mob who they seek. John eighteen three. Judas, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, uh, therefore knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am. And Judas also was betraying him, was standing with them. And therefore they said to him, I am. Or when therefore they, he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell into the ground. Again, therefore he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus told you. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So again, he's applying the covenant name of God, I am, to himself. Again, that John 18 passage, when we get to it, it's going to be very fascinating because it's a very powerful uh, demonstration of his deity, power over his forces, showing that even there in the garden, he is surrendering his life. He, he's voluntarily, right? He's laying down his life. No one takes it from him. He, he surrenders his life to them entirely and voluntarily because he's a volunteer, voluntarily uh, goes to the cross and volunteer sacrifices, uh, a substitute. So again, all through Jesus' ministry, he never couched or never uh, backed away from those declarations. All throughout his entire preaching, teaching, healing, discipling ministry, uh, Jesus repeatedly declared that he was God. John 10, 31, I and the Father are one. One in nature, one in essence. Every time Jesus said, my Father, which he said many times uh, in his ministry, he was underscoring the reality that he was of the same nature as God the Father. And the Jews understood that. The Jewish audience never missed that claim. They weren't confused over the phraseology. Uh, they understood that he was claiming deity. John eight or John five verse eighteen. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking him all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So again, Jesus very clearly claimed to be God. Uh, again, I just read it out of John eight fifty eight. Before Abraham was born, I am. Again, he's making an inescapable, inescapable claim to eternal existence. Before Abraham was born, I am eternally existing. So how important is all that? How important is it that you believe that Jesus is eternal God in human flesh? Well, remember what Jesus said back in John eight twenty four. Jesus said, therefore, I say to you, you shall die in your sin unless you believe that I am. John 8, 24, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. And again, Jesus understood very clearly what he was saying, and the Jews understood very clearly what he was saying. He was claiming to be eternal God. He was telling them, and he was telling the world, 
that unless you believe in my deity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, you are going to eternal hell. It is that simple. Unless you believe in the deity of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to eternal hell. It does not matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned you might be with your relationships with other people. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, you will go to eternal hell. Now, I know that might sound harsh, but if it is true, and it is, and you reject that truth, then it will cost you your eternal soul, which is even much more harsh of a reality. If you believe that Jesus was any kind of created being, no matter how elevated, no matter how noble, you will go to hell. You will die in your sin, meaning you will die unforgiven without forgiveness. And the penalty for rejecting Jesus Christ and his forgiveness that he offers is eternal punishment. So again, make no mistake about it, the Jewish religious leaders understood exactly what he was saying in every one of these I Am statements. That's why they hated him. They hated him because he claimed to be the reality of who he is, and they hated him because he confronted their false religious system that they elevated above truth, above the truth of revelation, above the truth of the reality of what they'd seen with their own eyes. That Jesus had proved the reality of who he was over and over. Jesus had demonstrated repeatedly his miraculous power that came from nowhere else except God. Jesus demonstrated his power over the supernatural realm, demons, over nature, right? Calming the sea, walking on water, even over the physical. He healed people, gave sight to the blind. Jesus demonstrated his power over sin, death, and the grave, having risen from the grave, having raised people from the dead. They're without excuse. So again, here in chapter 15, verse 1, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he again is making one final declaration in the context as he's headed off to the cross of his deity, which is going to lead into a discussion concerning the nature of genuine salvation. Because if you're not vitally connected to the person of Jesus Christ, you will not inherit eternal salvation, but rather you will face eternal judgment. That's the words of Christ himself. Remember what he said back in John 3.18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. I say it often here, there's no better day than this day to make sure of your eternal salvation because you're not guaranteed of tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the rest of the afternoon. And the reality is, apart from Christ, you're already under condemnation. You've already been judged. It's absolute foolishness of the uh, uh, most uh, uh, greatest kind to reject mercy and face judgment when you've been told the only way to escape is to repent, humble yourself, bow, and believe who Jesus Christ is. Because every man's eternal destiny is linked to the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, and an understanding, a proper understanding of the person of Jesus Christ leads to eternal life and improper understanding or rejection leads to eternal condemnation. So that's part of the setting. But what's the occasion? What, what really is driving this? What, why, why does he bring forth this analogy? He's leaving the upper room. He's getting ready to walk over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Why does he bring forth this analogy now? Now, if you read the commentaries and commentators, there's all kinds of ideas. But I think there's just one. I think he brings forth this analogy now at this moment because of Judas. He has to explain Judas, the apostate defector. Because all who are now with Jesus are the 11, right? Just the true followers of Christ. And as the events coming up, we're looking back. They don't know what's coming next. We're looking back as the events unfold before them. They're going to have to work through the defection of Judas, what they know at the moment is that he's been dismissed, right? Jesus dismissed him back in chapter 13 uh, after he had washed the disciples' feet. John 13, 1, before, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved 
his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. During the supper, verse 2, uh, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Down in verse 18 of John 13, Jesus tells his uh, followers that one of his own would betray him, and Judas is that individual. Judas had walked with Christ for three years. Judas had lived with all these other men for three years, and nobody suspected him. They trusted him to the point where he was there, uh, carried the purse, the money. Again, he, he's a man who lived amongst them and amongst Jesus for three years, and no one realized that he did not possess a genuine saving relationship with Christ. No one realized that he was not really part of Christ, not a true believer. He's going to leave the group. Again, the men don't know exactly why at the moment. He goes to the religious leaders of Israel. He sets up a deal to arrest Jesus for 30 pieces of silver so that Jesus might be captured, tried, executed. And then the text of Scripture says that Judas, uh, Judas goes out and hangs himself. Catapulting himself into eternal hell because of his rejection of Christ. How possibly could Judas reject Christ? How could he betray Christ? Now, the answer is we know that he will. Again, he's going to lead the authorities to the garden in just a few hours and betray Jesus with a kiss. So how are the other disciples to process these events as they unfold? How are they to understand this apostate defection, this false faith? So Jesus answers that question, I think, in part by this analogy. Because he's trying to help them understand there's a, there are those who appear to be attached to Jesus, but they don't produce any real fruit. There are those who appear to be attached to Jesus, but they don't produce any real fruit. It's pretty much like Jesus just said back in Matthew 7 that I read just a few moments ago, Matthew 7, verse 22. And not many, no, it's not many, or, or it's not a few, I should say. It's not a few, but it's many, right? Not a few, but many will say to me on that, Lord, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Bottom line is not everybody talking about heaven's going there. Again, look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned in contrast to verse 8 by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples that's how you know someone's a genuine follower of christ it's how you know that a person is genuinely united with him in a vital life-giving union with him He bears much fruit and so proves to be my disciple in contrast to those who bear no fruit. So again, I think this is a large part of the illustration, right? To determine who's a genuine believer. The analogy is to point out the nature of saving faith. How do you know someone's a true follower of Christ? That's the point here. Look back at uh, verse 4. It says, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. He abides in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit. From apart from me, you could do nothing. Again, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them to the fire. They are burned. So there's two kinds of branches. Those that are in life-giving union with the vine and produce fruit, and those who are not. Those who are fruitless vines. Vines that are dry, vines that are gathered up and then thrown into the fire. And everybody is here in this upper room in chapter 13. Right? The whole thing starts with all 12 being there, including the betrayer. So that is important because, again, you've got two kinds of branches in the room in John 13. You've got those who are in life-giving union with Christ, and they're going to produce fruit. That's the 11, the good branches. And then you have bad branches like Judas, who's going to be gathered up and thrown into the fire. 
those who abide in the vine and those who are cut off. So I really think he has to be considering contemplating Judas. He has to give a reason for his defection. The fact that he looked like he was part of the vine, but he really wasn't. Just like in literal vines, physical vines in the ground, right? Their branches are given outward appearance that they are attached to the vine, but they bear no fruit. So those that are useless, suckers, I guess you could call them, right? We take them off. We cut them because they're, they're not producing any fruit. They're, they're of no value. So Judas unquestionably is an issue. But there's another issue here. In the intentional reason for why Jesus uses the analogy of the vine. It's not just the defection of Judas, but it's really the apostasy of the entire nation. It's not just that Judas rejected Jesus as the Christ, the entire nation has rejected him. And again, just like in all these illustrations, all these other pictures, these I am statements of Christ, he gives illustrations of something that the people at the time would have understood in the context of their day. A sheep, shepherd, sheepfold, doors of the sheepfold. I mean, common pictures to teach spiritual life. And another uh, thing they would have understood in this culture is agriculture. They would have understood this issue of vines and vine dressers. They would have understood there's many kinds of vines. Again, many different kinds of, of grape vines in the area. So again, all the, all the points here, the vine, the vine dresser, the good branches, the band branches, again, very common pictures in everyday life. And above that, there's even something more that the 11 would have understood culturally because in the, in, in the context of the apostate defection of Judas, culturally, they would have understood that Israel was often referred to as a vine or a vineyard in the Old Testament. So put a mark there if you like, and then turn back. Let me just show you uh, one or two of them. Go back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, you see very clearly God's vine. Again, it's a parable. Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, a parable of an unproductive vine. Uh, a song, a poem. Really, it's a dirge. It's kind of a funeral song. Isaiah 5 verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved the song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. So again, Isaiah is singing this funeral dirge. It's a metaphor really for God's chosen people, Israel. They're God's vineyard, verse 2. And he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So the landowner in the story or in the song here loves the vineyard. He gives the vineyard, the vineyard every opportunity, every advantage. Plants it in a fertile hill, right, on a fruitful hill. Prepared the ground carefully. He dug all around it, removed all the stones. He planted it with a good stock, planted it with the choicest vine. He even protected it. He built a tower in the middle of it. And then he made provision in anticipation that it would produce fruit because he hewed out a wine vat in it. He thought it was going to be fruitful. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only uh, worthless grapes, wild grapes, bushem, sour grapes. And again here, that word's really speaking of something worse than just unfruitfulness. He's speaking about something that is foul, something that is bitter, something that is a poisonous, a not merely useless or unprofitable, but grapes that are offensive uh, to the smell, noxious. Uh, one commentator even says uh, a smell that produces air like a cadaver. That's the idea behind the word. That, that's the complete opposite and worst of what you had expected. Now, e- even a complete opposite of what you would expect to happen if the the vineyard owner, the landowner, didn't do anything. But he provided everything for it. He loved it. He cared it. cared for it. He worked it. He gave investment. Now, again, in the culture here in the book of Isaiah, this agrarian culture, your worth was tied up in your crop. And it would be an ultimate disaster for a man to lose his crop or for that crop to produce that which is worthless or inedible. So again, a man would take all he had, all of his possessions and all the effort he could to put it into the vineyard to make sure that all was done to make necessary for its success. 
But if something happened to that crop, if it ended up worthless, that would mean a personal disaster, a personal bankruptcy for the landowner. So I say that too, because in the context of Isaiah speaking these words, everyone's on bended ear, as it were. They're leaning forward, they're listening, they get it. And it's just a terrible story with devastating results. Again, verse 3, O now inhabitants of Jerusalem, verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So again, the landowner has done everything he can to create fruit-producing environment. And the vineyard, again, it's spiritually, uh, the vineyard is barren of fruit. What more could I have done? The landowner asks. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked for good grapes, it only yielded bad ones. O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Who's to blame here? Whose fault is it for the bad poisonous berries? The fault of the landowner, the owner of the vineyard, or the fault of the vineyard itself? Verse 5. So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed, burned, right? Burned up, eaten up, destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. The landowner is going to take away his protection. Verse 6, I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. He's going to destroy the vineyard. He's not going to provide any more care or special protection for the vineyard. So again, what's all this about? Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. So he's talking about Israel, right? He's covenant people. God, out of his grace and mercy and his electing love alone, chose Abram, or Abraham. And from Abraham came the nation of Israel, and God chose the nation of Israel to love and to, through that nation, to bless the world. He, he cared for the, the nation. He protected it diligently. And he intended for them to produce joy to the world. He expected good grapes. And all he got was worthless ones. Foul-smelling, poisonous, noxious berries, what more could I have done? Verse 7. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And we know historically in the nation of Israel, when God took away the wall, Israel was left unprotected and it's been trampled down by the nations ever since, right? Laid waste throughout history. Because it's an apostate vine, it's a bad vine, it's a corrupted vine, it's defective. Again, God had done everything in his power to create a fruit-producing environment, yet the vineyard is spiritually barren. And again, God called the nation of Israel into existence to be a blessing to the nations, that his life would flow through them, through the nation of Israel, and then to the world. But again, the nation of Israel proved itself to be unfaithful, idolatrous, immoral. And God brought judgment upon that nation. Uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 21, Yet I planted you as a choice vine and completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into a degenerate shoot of a foreign vine. So again, in the context of the culture, they knew. They knew that Israel was referred to in the Old Testament by the prophets as a vine or a vineyard. Turn over to a New Testament illustration of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. Verse 33. Again, Jesus telling a similar parable, illustrating Israel's apostasy, rejection of God's prophet, again, which will culminate in his murder, the murder of the Messiah. Matthew 21, verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. 
When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent out another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Verse 37, but afterward he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, seize his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, He will bring... He will uh, bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to another vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Speaking about himself. He's the chief cornerstone. Have you never read? So again, in the culture, they get it. They understand the analogy. They understand that Israel is the vine of the vineyard. In fact, the Pharisees understood that he was speaking right directly to them. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parable, he understood he was speaking about them. All right, so again, the analogy is clear in the culture. So again, in the culture, <clears throat> in the context here, by way both of agriculture and the way of a theological understanding of the Old Testament, Israel is God's choice vine. He uses the metaphor at the top of the chapter because he knows they will understand what he is saying. In fact, during the uh, time between the intertestamental period, the uh, uh, Maccabeans, they minted coins, and on the coin they had a vine on the coin illustrating Israel. And On Herod's temple, there was a, a vine that had been literally carved and overlaid with gold on the temple that again spoke to the <coughs> Israel as God's choice vine. So in the culture at the time, they get the picture. They understand the metaphor. Now go back to John 15. They understand the metaphor on all levels. Common agricultural issues in life. They understand the metaphor theologically. Again, he's trying to explain Judas. He's trying to explain the defection of Israel. John 15, 1. Jesus says to them, I am the true. Althanos. I am the true vine. The perfect vine. Again, he's making another profound statement concerning his deity. And again, he's saying that through him, listen, through him and him only, he is the true vine flows the life of God. Because again, in the context of the culture, the people of the nation who belonged to Jewish heritage, Jewish people, they thought they were fine. They were secure in their connection to God because they came from Abraham's stock. They're part of his lineage. But Jesus is saying that's not true. I am the true vine. Just because you're the physical lineage of Abraham, just because you're the nation of Israel, you think you're secure in your salvation. You think you're secure in your connection to God. Just because you're a member of God's chosen race, you think you're connected to all the blessings of God, but that's not so. Remember back in John 8? I don't know if I don't want to get you flipping around here, but you can listen or you can turn back there. I'm going to read a little bit of it. In John chapter 8, verse 37. John 8, 37. I know you're Abraham's offspring. I know you identify yourself with the God through Abraham, right? Let, let you, yet, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak these things which I've seen with my father, therefore you also do the things that you've heard from your father. Jesus, or they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, well, if, Abraham, if you are the children's, uh, Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You were doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come in my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not, uh, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand to the truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. But I speak the truth. You do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not believe them because you're not of God. He's saying, look, I am the true vine. 
not Abraham. Life, the true life of God, comes by connection with me, not through this uh, physical lineage of the person of Abraham. The true life of God flows only through Christ. Again, not through this physical connection, because Israel's corrupted, and not all Israel is Israel. Now again, Israel had been planted by God. Israel had been the stock of blessing, or designed by God to be the stock of blessing to the world. God's people to the world to bring life. The fact that God is, there's one God. The fact that he desires to be known. The fact that God wants to have a relationship with people. And at one point, through that proclamation, that great blessing was given to them, but Israel became unfaithful, idolatrous, immoral. Therefore, God brought judgment upon them, and therefore, God's, at the moment, they're no longer God's choice vine. They have been temporarily set aside. No longer is blessing coming through the covenantal relationship with Israel. Spiritual fruit, back to John 15, spiritual fruit, spiritual life, spiritual blessing is only coming through a spiritual connection, a spiritual union with the person of Jesus Christ. I am the true vine. So faith in Jesus, again, becomes the characteristic of membership with the God's people. It's faith in the person of Christ. One commentator says this. He says, when the word true is used in the New Testament, it's often used by the authors, authors to describe what is eternal, heavenly, or divine. He says, Israel was imperfect, but Christ is perfect. Israel was a type, but Christ is the reality. Israel is called the true tabernacle. Jesus is called the true tabernacle in Hebrews 2. The true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Again, as opposed to the original earthly tabernacle, right? God doesn't dwell in tents. God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ, right? That's what he's saying. Jesus is the true light, John 1 and 9. Well, God had revealed much truth, the author says in the Old Testament, Christ is the living embodiment of truth, the full revelation of God to humanity, the true light which enlightens everyone. He's also the true bread, John 6, 32. John, uh, God had sustained men by manna from heaven, but Christ is the real sustainer of life. The man in the wilderness was merely a symbol of him. So again, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying, look, I'm the final and the only source of spiritual life. I am the final, the only connection to God the Father. Now, in the time that we have remaining, I want to do just a very quick high-level flyover, if you will. I want to wrap it up, but I want you to kind of see a high-level level overview of what's coming next here in this portion of Scripture uh, so you can understand this illustration more fully, the, this metaphor. Again, everybody understands. They get the picture. And everybody, again, is pre- <coughs> present <coughs> Excuse me, at this drama that, that Christ is explaining, right? All the characters in, in the mind of Jesus as he's trying to explain got the 11 whom he loves deeply and personally, passionately. Got Judas off to the corner there, as it were. He's on his way to pray to the Father, right, in the, the garden, one whom he's been in constant communion and contact with, sharing eternally the love that they have always enjoyed. And again, in the context, they're all still, he's still grieving over Judas. Judas who had exited the fellowship. Judas who's a traitor at heart. Judas, who determined to betray Jesus into the hands of apostate Judaism for a small amount of money. I am the true vine. Again, that's the person of Jesus Christ. The only source of true spiritual life, the only source of true connection with God. And my father is the vine dresser, right? He's the one who who planted the choice vine. That'd be Christ. And he says, my father is the vine dresser. Christ isn't, it's not any kind of statement that diminishes the deity or the full equality of Jesus with the father. In his incarnation, as he voluntarily set aside the prerogatives of deity to carry out the role the Father had determined, as he would come to be the substitute of the sin bearer, he's just telling them of the roles. My Father is the vine dresser. He's the one who internally, eternally planted, uh, or, or eternally planned this whole thing. He's the one who, again, planted the true vine. He's the one who sent the true vine Christ into the world. He's the one who cared for him when he's in the world. He's the one who provided the virgin's womb for him to be born. He's the one who provided everything that Jesus needed in his life. He provided everything for the son. He cared for him. He protected him. He's the vine dresser. He's the good land owner. And Jesus, the son, does everything that the father asks. Jesus said, I only do the will of my father. I only do what the father tells me to do, only what the father commands, right? So he's a pleasing to the father.
And then again, with the story, you've got the branches, two kinds of branches attached to the vine. Just like there are a lot of people attached to the nation of Israel at the time, but again, not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who is a Jew is really in connection with the life-giving flow of God and genuine saving faith. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian really is one. Again, you've got two kinds of branches, the true and the false. And the Father is always working. The Father is always judging. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's apostate Judas. That's apostate Israel. That's anybody else who claims to be associated with God who does not produce fruit. And neither Judas, Israel, or anyone else who is a false professor produces any kind of real spiritual fruit. Therefore, they're all going to be cut off. They're going to be cast away. They're going to be burned. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it might bear more fruit. Again, the good branch, that's the disciples, the eleven, anybody else who's a true follower of Christ. All the way down to our day. God the Father is always working. It's always pruning. And Jesus says in the analogy, as it unfolds, there's going to be three distinguishing marks, three characteristics that set aside or set apart the false branches from the true, or the true branches from the false. Three distinguishing characteristics, three marks of true branches. First, they're going to bear spiritual fruit. Again, I'm just giving you a high-level overview. Secondly, they're going to abide or they're going to remain in Christ and in his love. And third, they're going to operate in full cooperation with the source of eternal life, meaning they're going to keep the Father's commandments. They're going to be obedient to the Father. They're going to bear spiritual fruit. They're going to remain in Christ and his love, and they're going to be obedient to the Father. And the Father is always working because the Father wants to produce more fruit. Again, drop down to verse 8. I've read it a couple times already. But by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So again, that's the metaphor. That's a quick overview. Why was it written? Why does Jesus speak these words right now at this point? Again, he's trying to answer the defection, first off, of uh, Judas. He's trying to answer the defection of the apostate nation of Israel. And most importantly, he's trying to distinguish between the true and false. He wants them to understand true and false association with him. He wants them to understand that a true association with the person of Jesus Christ always, listens, always gives evidence by spiritual fruit. And what the Father does is he prunes. Excuse me, he prunes and he produces even more fruit. In contrast to those who are false, who look like they belong, but are really false professors, not genuine, he's not going to prune, he's going to cut them off. They're going to be cast into the fire. And the vine dresser comes along with a knife to, again, prune the branches, to to produce more fruit in the fruit-producing branches. What does he use? What kind of knife? Verse 3. You already clean because the word that I've spoken to you. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. It's the word. That's the knife that the Father uses to prune those things from our life that are not helpful, the truth. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and tensions of the heart. Now that's a lot, I know. And that's just a superficial overview of what's coming that Lord willing will have an opportunity to unpack. How do you tell the truth from the false? There's always fruit. Always fruit in the life of a genuine believer. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, right? Ephesians 5.9, the fruit of light consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. Philippians 1.11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, what comes through Jesus Christ. I mean, I could go, go on and on. Colossians 1.9, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, please him, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so as to prove 
to be my disciples? How do you know someone's a genuine follower of Christ? <clears throat> How do you know that they're really connected, vitally connected to the source of life, to the vine? You see the fruit. Someone who claims association with Christ but produces no fruit of righteousness in their life is a false professor. And that is the whole point, to make sure you understand. Because Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. We never had that vital life-giving, intimate connection. It's not about religion. It's not about going to church. It's not about being associated with Abraham. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. And and let me tell you this as I close. Everyone has a relationship with Jesus Christ, period. Those who fail to repent are not going to have a very good relationship with Jesus Christ because he'll be their eternal judge. Those who repent, humble themselves, believe everything that God says, believe everything that Jesus Christ says about himself, why he's coming to the world to be the substitute, the sin bearer. Those who confess that they are sinners in need of a Savior, he is wonderful to know. As he secures your eternal salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, only in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for our time this morning. Thankful for this introductory look really into uh, this wonderful chapter that's about to unfold before us as we see that Jesus Christ is the true vine. There's no way to the Father except through him. And we just thank you for that fact. Press these truths to our heart, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.